Let's pray, and then I'll catch up to speed, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask for your spirit to teach us and guide us in your truth. Lord, these amazing events, these historical events, Lord, the, the significance of them is um, so weighty, um, so important, so significant. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to, to focus our minds and our hearts, that this wouldn't just be, oh, I heard this story before, uh, but we would allow this text to pierce our hearts and change our lives, that you teach us something new, that you'd give us a new perspective, and we would understand how this affects us today and how we can even apply it today. So we pray that you'd bless this time. In your name, amen. All right. Uh, so last couple of weeks, we've um, we've seen Jesus in his final day. Right. He's falsely accused. He's beaten. He's tortured. He's spat on all these different things are happening him uh, happening to him. And we see uh, this this uh, contrary thing going on between Jesus and the men in the text. We see his humility and the people's pride. We see the depravity of man and the grace of God. And when you look at the cross that's really what it is the depravity of man at its peak the at its pinnacle man decides i don't want god to rule over me so i'm going to kill him okay so that's one of the things that the cross represents i'm going to put to death my creator because i want to rule my own life but we see through that the grace of jesus christ the grace of god he used that death to bring grace to salvation to freedom to the very ones that put him on the cross but we also see as we mentioned in last week's teaching, the meekness of Christ, right? His power wasn't displayed by exercising it. His power was proven by laying it down. It takes more power to resist exercising power than it does to exercise power. And we see Jesus, though he could have taken himself off that cross, though he could have sent legions of angels to destroy the Roman and Jewish soldiers of that day, he didn't because of his love for us. We see the epitome of meekness displayed on the cross. And again, we see the weakness of man through his pride. He thinks he can control God. He thinks... He can kill God. He thinks he has power over God. But these things aren't entirely true. And so we ended our last message with the crucifixion. If we finish the story there, we would think what? Ultimate tragedy. What if the gospel ended there, right? We probably wouldn't be believers. We'd have nothing to believe in. But we see what looks like the ultimate tragedy. The king was doomed to the cross. His believers scattered. What hope is there? We're helpless. We're hopeless. But we know the story doesn't end there. And that's where we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 27. Because Jesus said, yes, he said he was going to die many times. But when he said he was going to die, he also said what else would happen? That he would rise from the dead. Title of his teaching is... From death to life. From death to life. See, as the cross redefined suffering and redefined death, the resurrection redefined life and the process of life. Common sense says, I live and I die. But the gospel says you can't live until you die. 
And that's the difference here. It really redefined the process of life. What we experience here as life is nothing compared to the life that Jesus Christ offers us both here and for eternity. Now, this concept is taught by Christ throughout the Bibles. Let me show you one time in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verse 23, John 12, 23, Jesus says, Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life will, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. We see the process of life and death. And Jesus' eyes is upside down. No, it's not that we live and we die. We must die if we want to live. If we truly want to live the life that Christ offers us, we must die. Now, this speaks of two things. The event, yes, we won't experience the resurrection until we experience death. But this is also a, a biblical, applicable thing, a lesson we can learn practically in our lives, which I'll get into in a moment as we break down this text. But let's just do that. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in a new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. So we see this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a wealthy man had position, had power, had prominence. But John tells us in John 19 that he's not alone. He's with who? He's with Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, right? Jesus came to him by night in John chapter 3. Later on, we see in John chapter 7, Nicodemus standing up for Jesus. So these men, these prominent men, were secret followers of Jesus Christ. They were actually disciples of the Lord. So they come to give him the proper burial that he deserved. But when we read this, I don't think we understand how risky this would have been. You got two wealthy, prominent men, and they're coming to claim the body of Jesus to Pilate. So this would have been a known thing. They're literally risking a lot. They're risking their prominence. They're risking their power. They're risking their fame. But not only that, they're risking their lives by claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ. As we'll study in Acts later on, followers of Jesus Christ, they get persecuted by the Jewish leaders. So these men... Just going to get the body of Jesus was a bold statement. This reveals their boldness and their dedication to the Lord. So they take his body and look what they do in verse 59. They wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. 
We talked about this when we taught on the seven feasts of the Lord, but this is a picture of the afikom, and it's referred to in the Hebrew. Now, at a Seder dinner or a Passover meal, if you've ever been to one, whether it's a Messianic one or whether it's a traditional Jewish one that they don't believe uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, regardless, this is something that they all do. They have these three pieces of matzah bread, literally sinless bread is the uh, what it means. Uh, bread without evil. Um, so they take these three pieces of matzah bread and they don't know what they represent. They all say different things. It's the kings and the priests and the prophets. It's Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. But we know these pieces of bread to represent the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what they do with the middle piece of bread? Literally, stack of three. They take the middle one, they break it in half, they roll it in a white linen cloth, and they hide it for the rest of the Seder dinner. And then the kids at the end, they got to try to find the 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 comb and the bread that was broken and hidden. When you look at Christ, that's exactly what it says of him. He was bruised and he was broken. Then he was wrapped in a hidden uh, a linen cloth and hidden in a tomb. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. So they didn't just lay him in any tomb. It says they laid him in a new tomb. Why? Well, this was from the Lord to not cause any confusion. Imagine if there were multiple bodies in there and we see this resurrected body, there'd be confusion as to who was it? (laughs) Who actually rose? Was it Jesus or was it some other person? So God strategically leads Joseph of Arimathea to put him in this new tomb, which happened to be Joseph's. And and no one had been in that tomb before so that when Christ rose, everybody would know it was him that rose. It was nobody else that had been risen from the dead. After that, they rolled this large stone against the door and of the tomb. And it would probably help if we had a picture, but I didn't uh, put one up. Now, you had these large, this was a, a customary thing. This is a cultural thing. You would seal the tomb with a large stone. Okay. Now, these large stones were large. Okay. Very large. Anywhere from one to four tons. Uh, most say about 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. These were very big stones and they were, uh, they were like a, a cylinder. Okay. They were round so you could roll them. Now, how they had the tomb set up is that there was a little dip in a crevice and there'd be a crevice around the whole thing. So this stone, they would, uh, chisel, uh, the crevice so that the stone would fit perfectly to seal the cave. Now, to put the stone in there to seal it would have been easy because it's like pushing a big stone downhill. It wouldn't have taken much. Um, so Joseph and Nicodemus or if anyone else, it wouldn't have taken but a couple men to push this big stone downhill. The hard thing is getting it out. It's like pushing this big stone uphill out of this crevice and this stone would have sealed it almost perfectly. That will come up a little bit later. That's why I'm mentioning it. Matthew chapter 27 Verse 62, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and seal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So these religious leaders, they heard Jesus preach the gospel. They heard Jesus say, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. And because they heard it, they're held accountable to it. See, we're held accountable to the things that we hear, the things that we know, and the things that we understand. There, 
They have an opportunity to accept the gospel, which some Pharisees did, we see, or reject it. But at the end of time, when they meet the Lord, they can't say, I didn't know. I didn't hear. They heard Jesus himself share the gospel. And that's the truth for any of us, every one of us that have heard the gospel. We're held accountable to it. We're without excuse. We can't tell God on the day that we meet him, I didn't know. No one ever told me. Now, some people could say that, but we can't say that because you're going to hear it right now. So these guys, the religious leaders, they heard Jesus preach the gospel. And so they go to Pilate and they say, we need to secure the tomb because we're afraid that the disciples are going to steal the body. Now, let's think about this. The last we saw the disciples, they were running away from the religious leaders like they were full of fear. Like this is not true, in my opinion, that they're actually afraid the disciples are going to pull off some conspiracy. Last time they saw the disciples, they were running away from them. So it wouldn't seem that the disciples are going to come back. OK, now we're ready to stand up to the religious leaders. We'll see that happen later, but for a different reason. So they say, oh, there's this conspiracy that's going to happen. They're going to take the uh, the body. Now, I don't believe that the religious leaders were actually afraid of the disciples taking the body. I think that they were afraid that Jesus was actually going to rise from the dead. They were afraid that Jesus was going to pull off what he said he was going to pull off. Because let's think about this logically. What good would it do if the disciples took Jesus' body out of the tomb? They have a dead body. What is a dead body going to do for you? I don't know if you've seen it. I'm not recommending it. Before I was a believer, weekend at Bernie's, right? They're carrying around this dead body, making people believe that the body's alive, right? Think about this. Like, what good is that going to do? Them taking Jesus and like moving his mouth and moving his arms, trying to convince everyone that he's alive. They'd be like, dude, you're, you're foolish. We know he's dead. The point is a dead body does them no good. And an empty tomb, if it's just an empty tomb, that's a bad argument for the resurrection. If it's just an empty tomb, that's a bad argument for the resurrection. Dead body, empty tomb, what does that get us? Not a resurrection that I'd be confident in, but that's not all of it. Not only do we see there's an empty tomb, we don't see a dead body. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says there's over 500 people, most of them still alive today. You can go ask. They saw the risen Christ. They saw him resurrected. We're not just talking about an empty tomb. We're talking about a resurrected Lord. We've seen him personally. Paul's saying that because, hey, if you're questioning it, if you ever, go ask the people that saw it, including himself. Go ask these people and see what they say. We're not talking about just a missing dead body. We're talking about a body that's been risen. Now that's a resurrection that's more believable. And it'll even get more believable as we continue to study this text. Matthew chapter 27, verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. Hey, you got people, you got soldiers, put as many people, if you want to put a hundred soldiers there, put as many as you want to. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. They made sure the stone was sealed and they had enough guards there to make sure nothing was going to happen. They planned this out. There was no way the disciples were going to get away with stealing the body of Jesus Christ. They were determined to not allow that to happen. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to draw, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. 
For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. So we see the Marys, they come to the tomb. Why? Well, Luke chapter 24, if you want to write this down, verses 1 to 3, it says they came to the tomb with spices. They came to the tomb assuming Jesus was dead to give him a proper burial. See, it would have been the Sabbath day that he was uh, buried. They couldn't fulfill like a, what a proper uh, ceremonial burial would have been because they couldn't work on the Sabbath. So they had to stop what they were doing after they put him in the tomb. And so they're coming back on Sunday because now they're able to work and they want to give him the honor that they think he deserves. But they think he's dead. OK, they, they think he actually died. But then we see this angel comes And he moves the stone. We see an earthquake happens at the same time. But the Bible is clear that it wasn't the earthquake that moved the stone. It was the angel that rolled the stone away. Now, as I mentioned, rolling the stone in to seal the tomb wouldn't have been very hard. A couple of us could do it. But to push the stone out of that crevice, imagine moving a few tons uphill. You ain't doing it. There's no one in this church that's able to do that. Maybe all of us together, possibly. This would have taken several very large, strong men. But the angel, like that, nothing. Like it's nothing to him. Just move the stone. This just shows you how powerful this angel actually is. So much so. Look how the guards respond. Look at verse 4. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. So the guards are terrified, okay? These are soldiers. They're probably bulky. They're probably strong, probably in good shape, not afraid of nothing. Except for an angel. Okay, they're terrified so much so they fall down as if they're dead. I've heard people tell me before, man, I really wish I could see an angel. I don't know about that. <laughs> when we look at people having encounters with angels, believers and non-believers in the Bible, most of the time they are terrified. This is, might not be something that we actually want to see. If we saw it, we may regret it. They are scared. Oh my gosh, this angel, look what he did with that stone. Imagine what he could do to me. That's probably what's going through their mind. But more important than that is what the angel said. He said to the Marys, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. They were seeking the crucified Christ only to find the resurrected Christ. And this is point number one. When we seek the crucifixion, we'll find the resurrection. When we seek the crucifixion, we'll find the resurrection. Now, this is a biblical principle. As we see in Philippians chapter 3, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks of the connection here and how the crucifixion crucifixion and resurrection uh, apply to our lives practically. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, 
If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What's he saying? I can't identify with the resurrection until I identify with the crucifixion. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul wasn't crucified. He was beheaded, history tells us. He's not saying that he was physically crucified. He's saying spiritually, I've put to death the old man. If we want to experience the resurrection, the old man's got to die. And Paul tells us that in, in, in other words, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to write this down, uh, verses 22 to 24, he says, put off the old man and put on the new man. The old man must go for the new man to rise. I'm not just talking about death and the event of death. I'm talking about right here, right now. If we want to experience the resurrected life, then the old man must be crucified. He must be put to death. Now, this doesn't mean killing yourself. The Bible does not condone that. Neither do I. We're talking about killing the flesh, denying ourselves. How do we do that? Well, it's a lot easier to understand than we might think. It's, it's telling my flesh no and my spirit yes on a regular basis. For example, I wake up, I know I should pray, but I'm too tired. I don't want to pray. You're going to give in the flesh, you're going to give in the spirit. No, 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 I'm going to pray because I want to feed the spirit and deny the flesh. I'm going to read too. I'm going to read the word of God instead of watching ESPN or looking at Facebook or whatever. No, I'm going to deny what my flesh is telling me to do. And I'm going to do what the spirit is telling me to do. That's what killing the flesh is all about. It's saying, no, I'm not going to commit this sin anymore. I'm going to walk in righteousness. I'm telling the old man, no, so much so that he's dead. He ain't coming back. I'm killing the old man by the decisions that I'm making in my life. It could be service, serving the church. No, I could be watching football. Or I could be doing this, but I'm going to serve today instead. Uh, uh, it could be repentance. Yeah, I'm going to walk away from this and start doing this. I'm going to cut these things out of my life because I don't want the old man coming back. I hate the old man. I love the new man and I want to walk in the new man. It could be CrossFit workouts. CrossFit workouts, what? I'm telling you, Matthew and I have been doing CrossFit like the last week or so, and Gio joined us today, and I literally felt like I was dying. Like, I thought, I'm like, I'm too young to have a heart attack. What is happening to me? Like, this isn't good. This can't be healthy. I literally feel like I'm going to die every single time. Now, this is a physical illustration, but it teaches a spiritual lesson. It's about denying the flesh. It's saying, no, I'm not going to listen to you to the flesh. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to get in the word. I'm going to pray. I'm going to exercise, I'm going to exercise my physical body because I want to grow spiritually. Now we know the Bible says physical exercise profits little and godliness profits much. I'm just using this as an illustration. And if you don't think CrossFit workouts can help you understand the crucifixion, then I invite you to come and work out with me one day because it definitely will give you a different perspective. Not even close to the crucifixion, but that denying of self. This is what my flesh is telling me, but I'm telling my flesh no. And I'm telling my spirit yes. Look what happens here. See, the Marys, in their pursuit of the crucified Christ, they found the resurrected Christ. The angel says to him, to both of them in verse 6, He is not here, for he is risen. See, it's not just seeking 
about the crucifixion or the death to self. It's seeking out the crucified Christ. This is truly where the resurrected life, the abundant life, the purpose-filled, joy-filled life is found in our pursuit of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, it says that our lives are hidden in Christ, meaning the purpose of my life, the abundant life, the, the life that the Lord desires for me, I can only find it in my pursuit of my creator. If I'm not pursuing my creator, I will not find purpose in this life. I won't have abundant life. I can lie to myself and convince myself that life is good, but all of us know that that's not true. Life apart from Christ is no life at all if we want to find abundant life. If we want to find the resurrected life, the empowered life, Holy Spirit empowered life, then it will only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he says in John chapter 11, verse 25, John chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection isn't just an event. It exists in the person of Jesus Christ. (laughs) There's no other resurrection to life resurrection to death there's no other resurrection to life other than through the person of jesus christ if we want that if we want to experience that then we got to seek him as we seek the crucified christ and purpose to understand the implications of the crucifixion and why jesus died for us he'll bring us to understand the purpose of the resurrection they go hand in hand now when it says when the angel said that Jesus rose, it's important to understand. It doesn't mean like he was resuscitated. It doesn't mean like one of the disciples or the angel came in there and gave him CPR and his dead body was brought back to life. No, when we look at the resurrection, he has a completely new body. God took his old body and he gave him a new body through the old body. And this is the same that will happen to us. And Paul tells us this later on in 1 Corinthians 15. That God's going to give us glorified bodies. He's going to give us spiritual bodies. Supernatural bodies. Bodies that are meant to last for eternity. Bodies that are meant to be in fellowship. Perfect fellowship with God. Bodies that are meant to never decay. Bodies that likely you don't have to wash. You don't have to wash your hair. You don't have to wear deodorant. You don't have to brush your teeth. Some of you are like, I don't even do that with the body I have now. Hopefully that's not you. But the truth is with the resurrected body, it's going to be perfect. It's going to be a perfect body. We don't have to worry about the stink, the stench of sin. It will all be gone. We will have bodies like him. It says we will see him as he is. We will become like him. We will get these resurrected bodies. But the only reason we get them is because he rose first. This had never happened in history before. Jesus brought people back to life. We see uh, even Elijah brought people back to life. We see people brought back to life uh, throughout the Bible, but this was different. This wasn't a resuscitation. This was uh, this was a a resurrection. And it says in First Corinthians fifteen twenty, in First Corinthians fifteen twenty, that he's the first fruits of those who rose from the dead. Meaning he is the first one to ever do this. The very first one. This had never happened in history. So the angel, it's important to see exactly how he communicates this. He says, he is not here for he has risen as he said. 
as he said, meaning he said he was going to do this, they shouldn't be surprised. Are you surprised when Jesus tells you he's going to do what he does when he tells you something and he follows through? Does that surprise you? Like when God answers your prayers, are you like, oh, my gosh, God answered my prayers. We are sometimes right because we doubt he's actually going to do what he says he's going to do. He's a God that answers prayers. It shouldn't cause us to, to be surprised, to be shocked when Christ does exactly what he said he's going to do. The Marys. Surprised. But this is what Jesus said he was going to do all along as he said. Then the angel invites them. He says, come, see the place where the Lord lay. So the angel, as we remember, he rolled away the stone. And you could think, wait, wait, wait. Was he trying to let Jesus out? No, he wasn't trying to let Jesus out. He was trying to let the disciples in. He wanted them to see that the tomb was empty. We know in John chapter 20, verse 19, that Jesus wasn't bound to material things. Now, many people say that Jesus would walk through walls. That's not necessarily what the Bible says. He could appear and reappear places. He could have walked through walls, but the Bible doesn't say that he just walked through walls. Because remember, Thomas could touch him physically. He wasn't bound to material things. He could have walked through walls. He could have just said, hey, all of a sudden I'm going to be here and now I'm going to be there. He could appear and reappear. We don't really know how it happened, but he would do that. Appear and reappear at places as he does with Paul in Acts chapter 9. Regardless, the point is that the stone wasn't preventing Jesus from going out of the tomb the stone wasn't preventing the lord from going out of the tomb the angel moved it so the disciples could see that the tomb was empty matthew chapter 28 verse 7 and go quickly so after they see the empty tomb the angel tells them uh, tell the, tells the ladies, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. So this angel, he tells the ladies first, listen, in verse six, he says, come and see the empty tomb. Then he says, go and tell why. Because we got to see before we can tell. Meaning, we got to see God work in our lives. We got to experience the gospel on some level to know that it's real before we can go communicate to it. If I've never been able to see the gospel work in my life, if I've been, never been able to see Christ work in my life, then what do I have to talk about? The point is that we got to see the Lord in our lives and be in relationship with him and allow him to do that work in us so that we can have confidence to tell. But you know what happens when we get to see him do that work in our lives? We can't help but tell. And that's exactly what happens later on in Acts. In Acts chapter 4 verse 20. In Acts 4.20, Peter and John heal a man outside the temple. Obviously, it was the Lord that healed him. And they preach in the name of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin is so upset. They're so angry. So they tell Peter and John, don't preach in the name of Jesus ever again. And you know what they say in verse 20? We can't help but speak of the things we've seen and heard. We can't help but speak of the things that we've seen and that we've heard. And that's the case for us, or at least it should be, when we see Christ work in our lives, when we hear the stories of what he did then and what he does now, we should be able to not zip our lips we should be able to 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 not close our mouths we 
can't help but speak of the things that we have seen and that we have heard. This should be the case for each and every one of us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Look what happens. The women, they go to do what the angel told them to do, being obedient to the Lord, because the angel is a messenger of God. And on the road to obedience, Jesus met them where they were at. And that's true for us too. When we're walking in obedience to what God asks us to do, we can be confident that he's going to meet us where we're at. I see in my life personally a direct correlation between as I'm responding to the Lord in obedience and as I see him working in my life. Now, I'm not taking anything away from grace. The point is, as we see in the text, that on the road of obedience, we can expect to meet the Lord. And I've seen this in so many different times in so many different ways. If we're purposing to do what he's asking us to do, we can expect them to show up in our lives. And when he meets them, he says, rejoice. Why? This is the only, only reasonable response when we understand the truth of the resurrection, to rejoice. It's point number two. The resurrection is the root of hope and joy. The resurrection is the root of hope and joy. He says rejoice. You can have hope. You can have joy because what I said is true. What I told you I was going to do happened. And I didn't just do this for me. I did this for you. Without the resurrection, what hope do we have? As believers, the Bible says we have none. Apart from the resurrection, we have no hope. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you haven't read this text before, uh, the whole chapter is about the resurrection tying into um, the rapture and the spiritual bodies that we will gain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16, it says, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still dead in your sins. Wait, I thought he died so my sins would be forgiven. But the resurrection solidifies the crucifixion. If it was just a crucifixion, all we have is a dead God. Okay, But there's a resurrection. Why? Because we worship a living God. And the resurrection, it magnifies the meaning of the crucifixion. He says, if there's no resurrection, you're still dead in your sins. Meaning, you're facing eternal judgment because you're not forgiven. Verse 18, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all of all men the most pitiable. Meaning we are pathetic people. If we hope in a resurrected Christ that never rose. okay, Our hope is seriously completely rooted in the fact that Christ rose from the dead. Hope in the Bible, in the original Greek, it's a joyful, confident expectation. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not like me saying, man, I hope Elizabeth has something for me to eat when I get home. No, no, no. This is based on confidence. This is based on what the Lord communicated and what He's done in our lives. We can be certain of it. We can be certain. That's what hope is in the Bible. I'm confident because the Lord did these things and fulfilled these things, He's going to do these other things 
things. I'm confident that because Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead and he rose from the dead, that I too will rise from the dead. Apart from the resurrection, there is no hope. There is no joy. But because of the resurrection, we know that this life isn't the end. There's something that comes after this, and it's perfection. It's joy, perfect fellowship with God, love like we've never experienced in our lives. It's heaven. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. First of all, The resurrection was confirmed to the soldiers and the religious leaders. They were aware of it. So how much worse is the case and the fact that they denied it? So what they did was, the soldiers tell them what happened. Oh, we saw this angel, Christ was risen, yada, yada, yada. And so the religious leaders, they try to pay him off. We're going to give you a large sum of money to come up with this story, okay? But you can't buy a lie. You can't buy a lie. The truth will always prove itself true eventually. And that's exactly what will happen in the case of the resurrection. So look at what the story is that they come up with. They say, uh, tell everybody that the disciples stole the, stole the body while we were sleeping. Okay. This was the best we could come up with. Okay. Yeah. Tell them you were sleeping. The disciples just happened to move the stone and, and they took the body. Now let's think about this. First of all, if you were a soldier that was supposed to be on guard to watch anything and you fell asleep, you were deserving of capital punishment. Okay. So if these soldiers admit that they fell, fell asleep, if they really did, then basically they're putting their life on the line for the sum of money that they're going to gain for telling this lie. Literally, they could be put to death for this. Not only that, when you look at how soldiers would watch certain places, whatever, whether it's people or prisoners or, or, or tombs, um, you typically have a rotation of people. You wouldn't have one person that was awake the whole time. You'd have, hey, okay, now it's my turn. Now it's your turn, yada, yada, yada. So this would imply that all of them happened to be asleep at the same time. There wasn't one that was awake. All the soldiers, they were all awake, or sorry, all asleep at the same exact time. On top of that, they were so sleepy and the disciples were so stealthy. The disciples were like ninjas. Okay. They moved that multiple ton rock out of the way. We didn't hear it, man. Those guys are like, good. I know they're fishermen and tax collectors, but they must have spent some time in China because they are like ninjas. Come on. Are you serious? Not only that, how would they know that it was the disciples if they were sleeping? They wouldn't. There's no way they could know that it was the disciples if they were asleep. So they're claiming something happened that they can't bear witness to. This is the most foolish argument. It's not believable at all, but this was really the best they could come up with. We don't want to admit to a risen Christ, so we got to lie about it and try to make up some unbelievable story. If anybody thought about the story, they'd be like, so how'd you know it was the disciples? And you start asking, so you were all sleeping. How'd you not hear the stone? Oh, we were so tired. We'd been drinking, whatever, whatever the case was. Like the, the, the story, it just doesn't line up with logic. So 
they tell them to tell everyone this. And it says in verse 15, this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, the story the religious leaders are spreading was to make people believe or disbelieve in the resurrection. But what they were actually doing is not persuade, not just persuading people to not believe in the resurrection. They were persuading people not to believe in the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Why? To not believe in the resurrection is to deny salvation. This is point number three. To deny the resurrection is to deny salvation. To deny the resurrection is to deny salvation. This story if people believed it, was likely costing them their souls. The resurrection is a crucial piece of the gospel message. If we don't believe that Christ rose, then we're not completely believing in the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's not just believing that Christ died for our sins. It's not even just believing that he is God in the flesh. It's also believing that he rose from the dead. If there's a piece of that missing that we're not believing in, then we're believing in a false gospel. We're not believing in the gospel that that Christ preached and the, the, the gospel that ultimately Christ executed. We're not putting our faith in the resurrection, then we're not putting our faith in the gospel. The resurrection is a crucial part of our Christianity. If we don't believe in it, then we truly aren't believing in the gospel that Christ preached. Now, this wasn't the only story that that people came up with uh, even then and and throughout history. People have come up with so many different explanations as to why um, the resurrection isn't true. Uh, One of them, I'll name a few. One of them is called the swoon theory, uh, which basically they say Jesus didn't die on the cross. He fainted on the cross and, and then he woke up when he was in the tomb. OK, now think about this. Uh, I don't know many people that can be scourged like that, uh, be beaten, crown of thorns, crucified and then pierced in the heart. Not many people survive that. Um, if you think you could survive that, I don't know. Uh, I, I doubt it, though. Uh, so the fact that people say that he fainted and he woke up, it's like, come on. Nobody could survive what he went through. Most people would have died from the scourging, let alone the crucifixion and the stabbing in the side. Uh, another theory people come up with is the replacement theory. And many Muslims believe this. They don't believe that Jesus was crucified. And they're really like the only group of people that in the world. Um, <laughs> anyone that looks at history can show that, that Jesus was actually documented, that he was crucified. But they come up with this replacement theory. And what they say is uh, it wasn't really Jesus that was crucified. It looked like Jesus, but it was actually Judas or Simon the Serene or Peter. And they all have different views that God made it supernaturally look like it was Christ on the cross, but it wasn't actually him. It's like, what? That doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense. Uh, another one people come up with is the hallucination theory that the disciples happened to be taking the same drugs, not that they were taking drugs, taking the same mushrooms, whatever you would say, and, 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 and they happened to be hallucinating the same thing. They all thought they saw Christ risen, but they were all like tripping on something and they all just thought that that's what they saw, but it wasn't really what they saw. Plus the 500 people, they they were hallucinating in the same way. It's just like, what? These arguments are absolutely foolish. They're absolutely ridiculous. When you study the resurrection, the more you study it, the more you'll be so confident in it 
And you look at today, even today where we stand, when you look at logical and philosophical arguments, theists, atheists, and agnostics, the majority in this world, even atheists and agnostics, will say that the disciples at least believed that they saw the resurrected Christ. And they have a lot of different theories. But they at least believed. It's like 75 to 80% of historians will say the disciples had to have at least believed that they saw the risen Christ. Whether they did or not, um, they won't say. But when you look at the resurrection and the historical and logical arguments for this, uh, it's com- it's so compelling. Uh, the resurrection is literally the best argument for the historical events. And, and the logical um, conclusion is that he actually rose from the dead. Think about this. Last time we saw the disciples, what were they doing? They were running. They were fleeing from the Lord. Only to later, after the resurrection, willing to die for him? Yeah, 10 of the 11 disciples were martyred for their faith. That's that's astounding. What what happened there? What changed? How do you go from faithlessness and doubt to full-fledged faith where you're willing to die? They saw something. It's not just something they believed. They saw something that changed their lives forever. You can't explain the change that happened in their lives. Just a a change of heart, a change of perspective. Yeah, I'm just going to be different today. No, No, a complete change of heart, a complete change of life. Specifically, some of these people that became leaders in the church are perhaps the most compelling arguments. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul mentions a few people, including himself. First, he mentions Peter. Why? Because Peter, last time we saw him, what was he doing? Denying Jesus to a little girl. Okay, He was afraid of a little girl, but you know what happened later on in history with Peter? They came to him. They told him, hey, you need to recant your faith. Say you don't believe. You can't keep preaching this Jesus stuff anymore. If you don't, we're going to kill your wife on a cross. You know what happened? Peter said, no, this is true. I've seen this, in other words. So they killed his wife in front of him. Then they went to kill him. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my king. So they crucified him upside down. Think about this. Would you allow your wife or your husband to be killed if you weren't absolutely certain about something? Absolutely confident. Even if there was a little bit of doubt, would you say, no, don't do it. I'm not sure. I give up. I don't want this to happen because maybe I thought I saw something that I didn't. Any of us would have done that. James, Jesus's brother, John chapter seven says he didn't believe that his brother was the Messiah. All of a sudden, after the resurrection, he becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he also would be martyred. Paul, from having Christians imprisoned and murdering them to becoming probably the most powerful apostle that ever lived. Why? He attributes it all to the resurrection. Even historians that know Paul's story, they have a hard time explaining this. How did he go from murdering these people to being a leader for these people? A significant event. He says it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you look at the evidence, the resurrection is hard not to believe. And the more you study it, the easier it is to be confident in. The other theories just don't line up. So it says, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. We'll finish this this last part as quick as I can. (laughs) Long announcements today. Uh, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed to them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, when you look at this word doubted, it's it's the Greek word distazo, okay, D-I-S-T-A-Z-O. And what it actually means um, 
is to be uncertain of something. It doesn't mean like they didn't believe their eyes. It means like they didn't know how to respond. Like, oh my gosh, Christ is actually risen. They're surprised that it happened, obviously, um, because they were faithless before this, uh, at least in some degree. But they they were uncertain how to respond. Some of them worshipped him. Some were like, I don't know what to do. Like, what do we do here? Where do we go from here? What Jesus said he was going to do, it actually happened. So then Jesus speaks in verse 18. And then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Everything is said that he that he says here is based on his authority. All authority has been given to me from the Father. So what I am telling you right now, you ought to listen to if you're claiming that I'm your authority. All authority has been given to me, whether you recognize it or not. With this authority, this is what I'm asking you to do. Preach the gospel and make the disciples. He says, he doesn't say, go make converts, get as many people as you can to, to believe, go make believers. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, go and make disciples. Why? He doesn't want people that just say they intellectually believe in him. He wants people to actually follow him. That's what he's calling us to do is is be followers of Christ that make followers of Christ. And this is only possible because of the resurrection. I'll explain before I do. Final point, fourth point. The power of the resurrection is the power to make disciples. The power of the resurrection is the power to make disciples. Because something else significant happens after Jesus rose and we see in Acts he would give the disciples the Holy Spirit to be able to accomplish the Great Commission. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 just before he sends the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 he tells them the purpose of why he's sending the Spirit. Acts 1 8 But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The purpose of the power of the Spirit is to bear witness of Jesus Christ and the way we live and what we communicate. That's the purpose of the power. And the Holy Spirit does many things. Conviction, gifts, a lot of different stuff. But the primary purpose is to give us the power to bear witness of Jesus Christ. And all those other things are so that we bear witness of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to preach the gospel and make disciples. Are we operating in that power? Are you sharing the word with people? When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Are you making disciples? Is there anyone that you're investing into? Anyone? Because this is not just my job. This isn't just pastor's jobs or any leaders in the church. This is every single follower of Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to be a disciple that makes a disciple. If you're truly following me, then you're going to lead others to follow me. That's what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking, you don't have to disciple 12 people or, or 70 or 120 or 1,000. What about one Just one. Is there one person that you're investing into? And you might say, well, I don't know enough to invest into them. You don't have to share with them what you don't know. Share with them what you do know. You know something, at least. 
And invest that, the things that have been committed to you. Paul tells us to invest those things into other people so that they can grow in faith. See, this is why we have the vision that we have at this church. Turn the world upside down and change the world around us. Because Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples. That's how we accomplish this. But he gives us further instruction. I'll reread it in verse 20, specifically how to make this happen. He says, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, you want to know how you're going to do this? You're going to be in the word. You're going to be a student of the word. And you're going to communicate what you're learning. Now, I'll close here. In Acts chapter 17, remember, we talked about this during announcements. How the disciples turned the world upside down or right side up and the answer is here in our text in acts chapter 17 the way they turned the world right side up was preaching the word empowered by the spirit but after that we're introduced to a group that helps us bridge the gap okay and they're called the bereans in acts chapter 17 verse 10 then the brethren immediately sent paul and silas away by night to berea When they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness. So they're receiving the teaching of the apostles. Then look what they do and search the scriptures. Wait a minute. Is what they're saying line up with what I'm reading in God's word? Smart, wise, daily. Okay, they did this daily. They were in the word daily to find out whether these things were so. Look what happens. Therefore, because they did that, because they received the teaching, Because they got in the word, look what happens. Therefore, many of them believed. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's as simple as that. Being in the word of God. Studying to show yourself approved. This doesn't mean you have to be a Bible college student or a scholar. It just means to have a desire to understand who the Lord is. To know what he wants from us. To be in his word. And this is why uh, I, I believe that we're supposed to be doing some of these things. The Advent devotional. The chronological Bible. All these things is to help us be in the word. Not for me. For you. So that your faith can grow. So that you can fulfill what God has asked you to fulfill. Sharing the word. Making disciples. And lastly he says. I am with you always even to the end of the age. It's not just Jesus sending us out and giving us direction. He's not just asking us to do something without him. He asks us to do it with him. He says, I'm going to be with you while you do this. I'll be with you while you read the word. Ask for my spirit. Ask me to enlighten the eyes of your understanding. I'll be with you to share the gospel. Ask for the power of the spirit to to bear witness, to preach in boldness. I'll be with you to disciple people. Ask me to give you discernment. I'm not asking you to do anything without me. I'm asking you to do all this stuff with me. It's not a burden. I bore the burden. Do you want to do this with me? And these are the Lord's final requests. See, Matthew, his gospel ends with the beginning. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. We see that beginning begin to play out in Acts. But it's still going on today. Acts doesn't end either. We're still in that Acts. We're we're still in the church age. And what are we supposed to do with that? Exactly what Jesus said. Preach the word and make disciples. If we're walking in the power of the Spirit, if we're walking in that resurrected life, it's inevitable that we will share the word and make disciples. 
But this isn't just a church-wide thing. This is a personal thing. It starts with individuals. What will you do with the Lord's last request? Will you pretend like you didn't know? Will you pretend like you didn't hear? Will you come up with an excuse and say, I can't or I won't? Because this isn't just me preaching a message. This is what the Lord actually said. Or will we respond and say, Lord, I want to honor you and fulfill what you ask me to do as your church, as your bride. It's the least that I could do when considering what you did for me. I pray that we would be a church that was set on, determined to help in fulfilling the Lord's great commission. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word is so true that everything you say either has come to pass or will come to pass. And we pray that we could just be confident in who you are and what you did, Lord, that the power of your resurrection would be made known, be made known to us as Paul said, he wants to know that power, but he recognizes some things in him have to die first. Lord, so I pray if there are any things that, that still need to be killed in us, which I'm confident there are, that you would help us to, to put to death those things, to put off the old man so that we can walk in the new man, in the newness of life, in the resurrected life. Lord, so we ask that you would give us the hearts and the power to fulfill your last request. In your name, amen.